name is Jeff Clark. I'm a member of the Leadership Council here, and it's my opportunity to invite our a special speaker today, and uh, we're going to introduce him with a little bit of a conversation. Uh, story is so central to our lives. In fact, the story is how our life actually gets kind of captured and tracked, and so I could tell you lots of facts about him. He's pastor of the Morgantown Community Church. Remember the word Morgantown. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Um, undergraduate Eastern Kentucky, studied at Asbury Theological Seminary, Western Kentucky University, uh, teaches in an area occasionally that I was always extremely intimidated in. I never got good. I have theology background. I never got good in Old Testament and Hebrew stuff, and he can do that stuff. And so if your need for religious validation requires you to kind of say some words that no one understands, if, if, you, if you need that, uh, see Josh afterwards, and he'll grunt some stuff at you, then, and, and maybe you'll feel... You know what's great, though, is when nobody else knows how to say it, you can make up whatever you want. You just, it yeah. doesn't matter. You I was just, taught the, the more ignorant you were, the more emphatic you should be. That's right. Um, <laughs> that, that seems to be almost like a religious mantra. Um, <laughs> so uh, what, what I really want to do is, is make sure we locate Josh in terms of who Josh is and the kind of work... That he does. So he's, he's got a family. Can you tell us a little bit about your family? Yeah, my wife, Carla, and I have been married almost 14 years. Yeah. We have a almost nine-year-old son, Cohen, that we adopted in uh, 2009. And we have an almost three-year-old daughter, uh, Ava, who we just finished adoption with this past summer. And then we have three um, foster kids that we're hoping to be able to adopt. So I have a nine, almost nine-year-old and then three two-year-olds and a one-year-old in my house right now. Yeah. I was going to explain that to you, but I thought you wouldn't believe me. They are like <laughs> making the choice to have four children under the eight, three and under. Is, yeah, is, basically. Yeah. Is that correct? And, yeah. And, and it would be maybe biographically inappropriate for me to go way down into detail except to say there's some real stuff that goes on in, in, in Carla's house and Josh's house in the work they're doing with these kids because... Uh, uh, a lot of them come from very fragile populations. Would that be a, yeah. a fair thing to say? Yeah. Uh, so I want you to know it's, it's sort of easy to be out here in sort of egghead land making up a bunch of stuff and trying to get folks to follow us. But one of the things that most impresses me about Josh is that he's way down in the trenches and, and, and what he brings to us today comes from, comes from actual praxis, from actual life. Uh, he did it like this morning, right? <laughs> Actually, they were all still asleep. I just slipped right out of the house. I just, <laughs> out. Yeah, I don't blame you. Is I'm going home to this afternoon, though. Yeah, has anybody in here with children ever done that trick? You were going to tell the kids bye, but like they're asleep and you didn't want to run the risk? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I pulled that one off. I was having a conversation this week with a lady named Carla, who's a friend of mine out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we were talking about some pretty cool things. And we were, I was saying, so who's, who's involved with you in, in this? She listed off three or four names, and she said, and Josh Scott out of Morgantown, Kentucky. I'm like, so, okay, so Morgantown, Kentucky, Minneapolis. Um, naturally. Naturally. It's just, I mean, you, has anybody, first of all, maybe you don't know where Morgantown is. Let me help you. Butler County? Butler County, Butler County Kentucky? I see they're not a geography-heavy crowd. No, <laughs> but Butler County is north of Bowling Green, yep. between Bowling Green and Owensboro, yep. and and uh, uh, I grew up in a very rural, small county in Kentucky. And one of the reasons why I'm so excited for Josh's work is I want everybody to understand this. We're on, we're all sort of on the same rising tide. 
this thing that's causing us together here isn't just happening on, on a street in West Nashville. This is happening worldwide. And, and Josh is doing this work. Morgantown, well, gosh, it's a lot smaller than Woodbury, Tennessee, for mm. example. I mean, it's, I mean, we're, we're talking a very small town. Now, so are you all kind of hedged a little bit? I mean, you're sort of almost full and affirming, for example, or are you just all the way out there? No, uh, we're, we're all the way out. In, in Morgantown. Yeah. In Morgantown, Kentucky. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I think some of us come from places, uh, I mean, frankly, some of us have come to the city in order to find alliance, in order to find allies and folks with whom we can feel safe and comfortable. But I need, uh, I need it helps me to understand that, that the folks in my hometown are also experiencing these kinds of changes and these kinds of new understandings. And we're not isolated. We're not all by ourselves. So, so Carl and I, Morgantown Community Church, you've been there about 13 years, so this is not a flash in the pan kind of a thing. Uh, and Carl and I were talking about a thing called with? With Collective, yeah. With Collective. One of the things I've discovered since I've become involved in some of the leadership in the progressive faith is I'm not as cool as the rest of you all are with names. <laughs> uh, with Collective. Yeah. What is With Collective? Uh, it's, it's a collective. Oh. <laughs> of uh, progressive uh, churches, leaders, thinkers, um, faith journeyers, uh, and it's about just being with each other because nobody should have to be alone in this That's work. And you all have a conference. Yeah, we have a conference up. coming up a uh, week after this in Denver um, with folks like Nadia Bowles-Weber and Brian McLaren and some of those folks. So Wow. So, so Josh comes to us from Morgantown doing the work there in a really important place and space, connected. Uh, we, 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 are really, we really are connected. And some of you all know this, but Grace Point has been given a unique, I think, gift, a mantle to occupy a space that's, that's having a lot of influence uh, in, in progressive faith, and um, sometimes, sometimes it feels a little uh, challenging, uh, worse than challenging. It feels like standing up on a rocking boat in a bad wind, but, but we're with a lot of other people, yep. and some good things are happening. Josh, point today. Thank you. Thank you. It is so great to be back with you. Uh, I'm not making a phone call. I'm just getting my slides ready. Um, it's great to be here. Uh, I'm one of those people who believes very deeply that all space is holy and that all ground is holy ground, but this room doesn't hurt. I mean, it's unbelievable, and it's so great to be back with you. So uh, what I want to do is, is we're going to go through... Um, a text here in Matthew 15, and it's a story, just to tell you a bit about why I chose this, it's a story that um, I'd heard a lot and read a lot in my life, uh, and a couple years, it's been a couple years ago, I, I just happened to read it again, and it sort of just floored me um, at what was going on in this story, and so I just want to walk through it a bit with you today. Matthew 15, from there, Jesus went to the regions of Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman, remember that. Canaanite woman, a Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession, but he didn't respond to her at all. His disciples came and urged him, send her away. She keeps shouting out after us. Jesus replied, I've been sent only to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. 
He replied, it's not good to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. It will be just as you wish. And right then, her daughter was healed. Now, how many of you heard this story before? Okay, so lots and lots of you. Um, Did you notice, just as we read through that, was there anything that jumped out at you? Was there any line that jumped out at you? Were there lines that jumped out out at you? It's interesting to me how this story plays out. I mean, Jesus essentially ignores her. And then when he doesn't ignore her, he says some other things that are kind of worse than ignoring her. Uh, And then in the end, he comes around and he heals her daughter. What is going on in this story? And it seems like if if you were going to tell a story of like your guy, your founder, you would always want to tell the story in the best light possible, right? I mean, that's what we tend to do. We tend to take our founders of whatever it is, take the people we celebrate, and we sort of only tell all the good things about them uh, and not any sort of things that might make people uncomfortable. And yet here in the Bible, and actually Mark tells this same story in Mark chapter 7, He wrote first, then Matthew comes along and tells this same story, but he changes some details, and that really is important. So uh, here we go. I want to show you first a map, just so you know, because you know if you don't know where Morgantown is, you may not know where Tyre and Sidon are, and so uh, (laughs) we need to. um, Can I get those sermon slides, please? Um, So we're going to begin here, and as you can see, Tyre and Sidon are up on the coast of the Mediterranean. Down in the sort of the bottom middle, you have Galilee and Nazareth, Nazareth and Capernaum and Sepphoris and those places. The important thing here is you see that little light dotted line? Where that line is that goes up through uh, where you see Caesarea Philippi and Syria, anything north of that is non-Jewish territory. So below it is Jewish territory. Above it is non-Jewish territory. When this story takes place in Matthew 15, it's taking place in non-Jewish territory. And this is important because location, 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 right? Location matters. Where things happen matter. And in this story, it happens north of Jewish territory in uh, Gentile territory. And Gentiles, if you're not familiar with the word Gentile, Gentile is just a non-Jewish person. So it's like 99% of the world. Um, and and I've, always, I've found this, that often sort of the way I was taught to read the Bible growing up, was that you just randomly pick a verse and construct a theology around it and then be angry at people who don't see it like you do. I don't know if that's been your experience. Um, But I learned something, and that is that the Bible has context. And context means that you don't just read one little story and then go, oh, this is what it means. You have to read the stuff that goes before it, and you have to read the stuff that comes after it. So if we want to see the stuff that comes before this story, we have to go, Matthew 15 is where we are. We have to go back because 14 comes before 15. I know you're impressed, and I hope my parents see this so they'll know they didn't waste a dime on my education, right? Uh, 14 comes before 15. And so here's what happens in Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, John the Baptist, who is sort of Jesus, uh, Jesus began his work being baptized by John, so Jesus was sort of a f- follower of John until John got arrested. In, John, uh, in Matthew 14, John the Baptist is executed. And when Jesus gets this news, he, he tries to get away. The text says he withdraws to a deserted place by himself. Why might Jesus do that? I, I think, I mean, there, one of the Gospels says they were some family relation, but I think the bigger deal is John's leading a uh, resistance movement against the Roman Empire, and he's killed for it. 
And what is Jesus leading? A resistance movement against the Roman Empire. So I think when John dies, things get real, and Jesus realizes, I may be on borrowed time here. I'm about to go through some stuff. So he gets away by himself to grieve, to grieve John, to grieve his own impending fate, to, to just sort of process it all. And crowds find out where he is, and they follow them anyway. Right? If you have kids, you know what this means. You're trying to get five minutes alone, and their hand is under the bathroom door, you know? like a cat, and they're just looking to get in the room. Like, this is what Jesus is experiencing here. So the, these crowds go out to him in this deserted place, and he teaches them, and he heals them, and it begins to get late, and they're hungry. And Jesus says to his disciples, well, we got to feed them. And they say, it's not our problem, man, right? Uh, and instead, Jesus tells them, no, you feed them. And so they have them all sit down in groups, and they pass out some food. And 5,000 men, not counting women and children, is what the text says, so lots and lots of people are fed, and they pick up 12 basketfuls at the end. And then we come to Matthew 15. Jesus is uh, still in Jewish territory at this point. He gets into a discussion, a debate with the religious leaders about purity, because his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. And we all collectively said, gross. But the problem with the Pharisees is a hygiene here. The problem with these religious leaders is that it's breaking purity law. Because if you eat with dirty hands, whatever you put into your body makes you dirty. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, no. Actually, it's not what you put into you that makes you dirty. It's what comes out of you that's the problem. It's because uh, it comes from the heart. And so the things that are coming out of you, those are the things we need to focus on. Then after Jesus does that, then he uh, goes in and he meets this Canaanite woman in Matthew 15. He meets a Canaanite woman. He leaves Jewish territory, and he enters into Gentile territory, and he bumps in. The first person he bumps into in Gentile territory is a Canaanite woman. Now, here's a problem with Canaanite people. They didn't exist anymore. In Jesus' day, Canaanites were no longer around. They were gone. They disappeared. Mark actually calls this woman a Syrophoenician woman. Those people did exist. So what is Matthew doing here? Why does Matthew make this decision to call this woman a Canaanite? A group of people who just don't exist anymore. I think Matthew's making a larger point here. Matthew's making a point about their history. Because when they were liberated from slavery in Egypt and they went into the desert, they were marching one place, and that was the Promised Land. And in the Promised Land... It was already inhabited. And their marching orders were pretty, pretty brutal at the time. Notice this from Deuteronomy chapter 7. Maybe. Here we go. Now, once the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to take possession of, and he drives out numerous nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, seven nations that are larger and stronger than you, Hang on to that number seven, by the way. Seven nations that are larger and stronger than you. And the, once the Lord your God lays them before you, you must strike them down, placing them under the ban. The ban essentially means this. Total annihilation. Nothing survives. Not women, not children, not infants, not animals. Placing someone under the ban meant it's total destruction of everything. Nothing that has breath survives. Don't make any covenants with them. Don't be merciful to them. Did you know there was a line in the Bible that said, don't be merciful? It's there. 
Don't be merciful. Don't intermarry with them. Don't give your daughter to one of their sons to marry. And don't take one of their daughters to marry your son because they will turn your child away from following me so that they end up serving other gods. Right? This is where the, the relationship with the Canaanites began. And here we come to Matthew 15. And Matthew says that there's a Canaanite woman and they didn't exist anymore. Is this like an error on Matthew's part? Did he get it published? And then he was like, oh, there's an error. I call it a Canaanite. Canaanites don't exist. Or is there something larger going on? A Canaanite woman from those territories came out and shouted, show me mercy, son of David. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession, but he didn't respond to her at all. Can you relate to this woman? I remember when our almost nine-year-old son was around two years old, and it was a, it was a Sunday. He'd been sick for a couple days, and uh, I'd gone to church that morning, and they'd stayed home. But by the time I was getting home from church, he had, his fever had broken a bit, and he was feeling better. So my wife took him to see her grandparents, and they ate lunch together. But after lunch was over, she called me, and she was panicky. And she said, um, our son's name is Cohen. She said, Cohen's fever has really shot up all of a sudden. It just spiked. It's, it's like 104 uh, from, from like 98. We have to get him to... Um, the urgent care. And so I got in our, I think it was, I had a Prius at the time, so it was a muscle car. And uh, we load uh, all of us into the car and we break all possible traffic laws and we get him to urgent care and we get him checked in and we're sitting in the lobby waiting and he's sitting uh, on my wife, like laying against her and the heat from his body is radiating over. I can feel it from, you know, several inches away. And at one point he just sits up and looks at her but he's not looking at her. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but like he's staring at her, but he's not. And he begins to seize. Uh, and uh, we found out he's having, he was having a febrile seizure, which is what happens when fever in kids that age shoots up too high too quick. It causes a seizure. Didn't know that at the time. Just know that he's seizing. And so I take him and I give him to the nurses and they take him back and they ask for a crash cart. Which ter- but they just needed supplies. I felt like they could have just said that. Give me the supply cart. Crash cart has a whole other level of... And I just remember feeling so helpless and uh, so afraid and like there was no one who could do anything to help me. And I was, de- I was really feeling desperate. Now, fortunately, he recovered from that and he's never had another one and he's been fine. But in that moment, as I read this text, I, I can relate in some ways, to this Canaanite woman, that your child is suffering and you would do anything and you're powerless. And you call out to the person who can do something and that person just ignores you. Do you get the last line? He didn't respond to her at all. He didn't respond to her at all. Is this surprising from Jesus? This is not the Jesus we've come to know. This is not the Jesus who we've, you know, painted pictures of with little children all over his lap and, you know, wearing the beauty pageant sash and the clairol hair. That's not the Jesus we've come to know. And yet this is where the story begins with a woman who is desperate for help and Jesus ignores her. And his disciples come along and they're like, Jesus, this woman, she just keeps yelling after us. Could you just tell her she needs to go away? Uh, I don't know what happened there, but we'll see if we can go back. There we go. Jesus replies to the woman, I've only been sent to the lost sheep, the people of Israel. What's he saying? 
that your people aren't my people and that only my people are my problem. But I don't, I don't, I'm not responsible for what happens to your daughter or to you. You're not part of our tribe. You're not a part of the in-group. You're not a part of, of who we are. There's a collective we, and you aren't in the we, so you're not my problem. And the woman comes back around, and she said, uh, Lord, help me. And he says to her, it is not good to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. Anybody uncomfortable with that? Now, I think before we, before we talk about what that means, we need to say this, that um, in this story, this story could be read and interpreted in a very, um, to, to look bad on Jesus, who's Jewish, right? And so we could say that this is a Jewish problem. Uh, and yet, where we live and what's going on in our country right now, we need to be very clear and say that this is not a Jewish problem. Uh, what happened to the folks in the synagogue in Pittsburgh last week uh, is a very similar, uh, a very similar thing to what we see here, which is indifference. And somebody who just not only doesn't care, but seeks to wound and hurt and harm someone else. And the problem in this story, and the problem in our world at this moment, the problem is dehumanization. When you call someone a dog, what are you doing? You're saying you're subhuman. There's the basement of what it means to be human, and you're down here. And if you're not human, I don't have to worry about you. Now, dogs held a very different place in this culture than they do in ours. People didn't dress them up for Halloween. Right? They, they, they just didn't. Um, they, weren't, they weren't at that place yet. Uh, perhaps that place of cultural absurdity. I don't know. Call it what you want. They weren't there yet. And so to call someone, you know, in our culture, you could call someone a dog, and your dog maybe lives better than a lot of people in the world. Right? That's not what's happening here. Jesus is saying, you're subhuman. You're not, we don't give dogs what belongs to children. And the plot line here is very clear. We're the kids. You're the dog, right? Anybody uncomfortable by that? Anybody uncomfortable with this Jesus who just says, not my problem. You're, you're not even really human to me. And then notice what she does. She's undaunted. Yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off their master's table. Right? Okay, fine. Call me a dog. But even the dogs eat the crumbs off the table. What is she doing? She's not wilting back and saying, okay, well, I'm sorry I bothered you. She's asserting herself. She's saying, I'm here, and you have to see my humanity. I'm here, and you can't look past me, and you can't ignore me. I'm going, to, I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to fight for my kid, and I'm not going to back down until you do the thing that only you can do to help her out. And what does Jesus do? He's like, all righty then. Okay. I was wrong. I was wrong. You actually have great faith. You're actually demonstrating something that I really haven't seen other places, even in Jewish territory. You have great faith, so your daughter is going to be healed. What happens in this story? Jesus is confronted. He has a bias. He has a prejudice, and it's not one that he came up with on his own. It was the, it's one that he'd been handed. How many of you uh, have biases and prejudices you've been handed? Um, and actually, there's this um, term called implicit bias, 
And an implicit bias is essentially something that you have that you don't even know you have. It may go against everything you believe, but deep down, and sometimes it'll come out and you will shock yourself. Right? You'll be shocked. Like, I'm not that person, and yet, I might be that person. I, I don't have biases. I'm super inclusive. I'm super loving and super compassionate. And then, the, then something happens, and you think something, or you say something, or you do something, and you're like, that's not the person I want to be. It's just in the air, right? It's just in the water you drink. And Jesus had been sort of handed this worldview. There's an us and there's a them. There's an in-group and an out-group. There are the children and there are the dogs. And we don't give to dogs what belongs to the children. And Jesus is just being a person of his day and age. He's given a worldview. And he's never had to question it up to that point. I see this happen all the time. I'll tell you something happened to me this past week. We're doing some remodeling at our church building, and I went to uh, get some paint from Lowe's, and I always feel like they know I'm a fraud when I walk in there, you know, because I don't know anything about that stuff. But I went in and bought paint, and I tried to hide my lack of knowledge. And I run into somebody. I tend to be uh, an extrovert in some circumstances and an introvert in others, and when I'm shopping at Lowe's, I'm an introvert. But this guy walks by, and he's wearing a West Virginia football hat. And I'm a huge West Virginia fan. I'm from that area. And I always get excited to see sort of, you know, somebody else in exile. And we're trying to make a life another place. And I stopped him and talked to him. And I decided on the spot after a five-minute conversation with this guy that he walked away. And I literally thought, he's a good guy. I know nothing about him. He could have punched a cat or a baby in the parking lot. And I would never have known it. And yet I made an assumption about him just based on the fact that we have something in common. And we do this the opposite way, when somebody doesn't do something like we do it, we tend to make assumptions about them. Right? Do you see how this happens where we create the us that's good and the them that's bad? And this is the world Jesus lives in. And then this woman stuns him, stuns him, floors him. He changes his mind and he heals her daughter. And then he goes on to another place in Gentile territory where he heals some more people and then a crowd gathers and he feeds 4,000 plus and, and here's how that uh, goes at the end of that story. Everyone ate until they were full. The disciples collected seven basketfuls of leftovers. 4,000 men ate, plus women and children. They collected seven baskets of leftovers. I wonder if they did what we do. We, we always take leftovers, and I leave them on top of the car. And we drive away, and somebody calls like, hey, you left your pizza on the side of the road. Um, and they had seven basketfuls left over. I don't know how they got them home. But everybody ate, everybody was full, and there was an abundance left over. And, and how many basketfuls are there? I struggled with that detail for a long time. I mean, when there were 12 basketfuls of food left over in Jewish territory, I mean, what's that talking about, right? 12 tribes of Israel, they're being restored and reconstituted and, and brought back. But what about the seven you remember when we read the Deuteronomy passage earlier? How many nations of Canaanites were they called to exterminate? Seven. They were called to destroy the seven nations that occupied the land. And here in Matthew 15, Jesus feeds the people of that land and there are seven basketfuls left over. The meaning is not so subtle, is it? It's almost screaming at us from the page. In this story, the idea of conquest is being radically challenged and transformed. We thought 
that those seven groups of people were our enemies. We fought that to get what was ours, we had to take what was theirs. We fought that the only way was for us to kill all those people who were different. And now in Matthew 15, in the eyes of a woman whose child is suffering, Jesus' mind is changed, his heart is changed, and he reaches out not only to heal her daughter, but to heal many others and to make sure everybody was cared for. The story is, not only are we learning we shouldn't kill our enemies, we should also make sure they have enough food to eat. We should also care for them. We should work for their healing. Jesus learns something, and it changes the course of his ministry. And I think we could argue it changes the course of human history. Right? As the early followers of Jesus begin to wrestle with this same dynamic, and they begin to realize that that the group of people we're supposed to take this to isn't just a small group of people, we can invite the world into this way of being. Here's what Brian McLaren says about this text. If Jesus' first feeding miracle and its 12 basket surplus suggest a reconstitution of the 12 tribes being led through the wilderness with a new kind of manna, then this second feeding miracle suggests a new kind of conquest, not with swords and spears, but with bread and fish. Not to destroy, but to serve and heal. Jesus seizes the old narrative, shakes it, turns it inside out, and offers a new story that reframes a future radically different from the past. Jesus comes to terms with what happened in his people's past. And he changes his mind about it. By the way, in the Bible, the word that means to change your mind is the word to repent. Jesus repents. Jesus repents. Because repent doesn't mean to feel sorry. Repent means to change your mind. And maybe feel sorry. (laughs) But feeling sorry is not the point. The point is to rethink to think anew, to think differently. Jesus has an experience that causes him to think differently. Jesus encountered an, encountered an other, a person who was different. And his perspective and bias were challenged, and he repented and he changed his mind. I, I think the reason I've been so stuck on this story is that in the world we live in, those of us who go by some sort of religious label that's connected to the Christian tradition, there's a lot of things we have to repent of. We have to repent of our complicity and propping up systems of patriarchy and supremacy and white supremacy. We have to repent of our treatment of God's beloved children who have not been given a seat at the table. We have to repent of ways that we have seen other people as enemies to be defeated, right? I mean, we, when I was growing up in church, we were taught not to trust Methodists. From the pulpit. You can't trust Methodists because they ordain women and they socially drink. Like, what's better? Drinking in private? Like, I think social drinking sounds a little more healthy. Um, uh, and yet we, we were taught to have this animosity toward another group of people we didn't know. And I ended up doing some time. It sounds like I went to prison. I ended up doing some time at a Methodist seminary. And I found out that we have theological differences. I have them now from Methodists, but not on those things. And that they actually aren't my enemy. Right? We're taught this tribal faith, which is all that matters is our church being successful. And success always has a certain meaning, right? Instead of, actually, what if, what if we all repented of the ways that we've lived in ways that are divisive and fracturing and exclusive 
and painful. And what if we tried to live toward others the way Jesus lived toward these people who he fed and healed? And it's because Jesus met someone. He had an encounter, and that encounter changed him. If you're here, I'm guessing if you've been a part of Grace Point for a while, you've probably undergone some theological change, haven't you? You're not who you were a year ago or 10 years ago. You've been transformed in ways. How did that begin? I I would be willing to bet it began by meeting someone who didn't fit inside your categories of a person, a Jesus follower, a Christian. You met someone who was deeply connected to God and deeply connected to this Jesus, and it didn't fit your worldview because they weren't supposed to be. And you were forced to make a choice. Do I double down on something that isn't good or generous, or ultimately it it doesn't really seem like the way of Jesus when you really boil it down, or do do I change my mind? People sometimes ask, or they'll say to you, you know, you wouldn't have progressive views if you would just read the Bible. What? That's actually how it happened to me. Like I met people and I went back to the Bible and I realized that the readings of the Bible I'd been given were no longer working. And they actually never worked. They never worked. So the question I want to leave us with today is we meet this Jesus who repents. This Jesus who has his worldview blown up. This Jesus who has a specific view that is challenged and he realizes my arms have been open to this group of people, but now I'm learning my arms need to be open to every person. What about our worldview needs to be transformed? How do we need to experience some sort of transformation about the way we see people or the way we judge people or the way we evaluate people? What needs to change? And are we willing to make those changes? Are we willing to have our way of seeing the world? And you know what? It's easy to do this when you're not involved. Uh, But imagine that somebody has wounded you. How do you respond? Do you lash out? Or do you seek forgiveness and transformation? We have been given this great example of Jesus. And and people have tried to, by the way, when I was researching this, some people were saying, well, Jesus is calling her a dog to test his disciples. That's even more jerky, to be honest with you. Right? It's one thing to think, oh, this guy has a worldview that needs to change. It's another thing to like, he's just putting this woman through this psychological damage to prove a point. That's not good. I think Jesus had a very specific worldview. And I think this woman changed it. And I think some of us in this room have had our worldview changed by people just like her. And, and it will continue to happen if we continue to stay open. Are you with me? Let's pray. For this Jesus who changes his mind. For this Jesus who shows us that it's okay to rethink. It's okay to reform. It's okay to leave behind a perspective that doesn't work anymore. We are grateful. This is not a Jesus who walks three feet above the soil. This is a Jesus who walks on dirt And this is a Jesus who lives in a world where uh, prejudice and bias are real things. And in this moment, he's transformed in a way by this woman. And we pray that our hearts will be open. 
that our eyes and ears will be open and that we will be willing to be transformed by the people we meet. We're finding that Spirit meets us in all sorts of disguises. So may we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts and arms open to embrace whoever, whoever the Spirit invites into our world. We're grateful and thankful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.